Okay, friends, uh, good evening again. Uh, so tonight we're going to explore Hebrews a bit more, uh, as we have done in the past. And as I, I've mentioned, uh, we're going through Hebrews in our Bible study. It just made sense uh, that I, I would preach on this text here. And as you can tell, we haven't finished yet, as we, we're still lingering here. It's because it's, it's so dense, it's, it's so... Uh, full of, of, of poetry in a sense. It's poetic prose. It's so rich, um, that it takes some time. It's full of, of, of old, uh, of reference to the Old Testament. And, but it also has a, a very lovely balance, balance between, uh, explanation and exhortation, doctrine and application. And I think as we delve into this text here tonight, I think we need to bear that in mind. Because this passage is no different. It has all of these elements here together. Uh, the passage that we see, in, uh, although we read from verses 14 to 29, it covers actually this last section here from uh, verse 18 to verses 29 to the end of the chapter. And one thing that we need to understand here and to bear in mind is that this is essentially the end of the letter. Uh, this letter to the Hebrews. We have the, 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 the 13th chapter afterwards, but in terms of the author exposition, this is pretty much, you know, his conclusion, um, the climax of the, the peroration, as they call, you know, the conclusion that um, tries to induce, to inspire the authors of the strength of his remarks. Oh, in chapter 13, he will continue um, uh, with let the bro- brotherly love and but it's more almost like a, as an observation as a post note as uh, as a, a practical as exhortations that um, arrive uh, arise from uh, the main points here uh, and through, throughout this uh, this sermonic letter we call it sermonic because it has this it, it, it reads like a sermon and it, although it's a letter, it reads like a, a sermon the author, main thrust, the, the main line of the, the sermon, if I may say, is the supremacy of Jesus. So he starts in, in, in writing to Jews, that's why we need to bear in mind uh, the Old Testament references. He goes through the very important aspects of Judaism, of their religion, of their identity, and what con- constituted that. And he draws this comparison with Christ. For instance, do you like angels, as he starts in in the beginning of the letter, Jesus is actually worshipped by angels. Do you like Moses? Jesus is far greater than Moses. In the house uh, where Moses was a servant, Jesus is the son in the house. Do you treasure the Sabbath? It's in Jesus that we the eternal rest. Are you relying on the traditions, you know, in the, the sacrificial system in the temple? Do you treasure that as well? Well, is Jesus the high priest after the order Melchizedek in whose um, sacrifice we can have true redemption? And he's now ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. He is a mediator of the new covenant, a much better covenant. The old, the old covenant was good. Uh, in the view of the author here, but in the panorama of the, this progressive revelation uh, of the redemptive history, it was incomplete. It was good, but it was incomplete. And all of these images were just shadows, pointers to the reality, to the fulfillment that is in Christ. So I ask that you try to 
keep that in mind because all of this was leading the author into this point that we're going uh, to hear tonight. And he draws um, this final contrast here. Hebrews, if you read Hebrews, you see that it's, it's this whole studying contrast. And that's the final image here that he draws when he contrasts these mountains, Sinai and Zion. And I think it's, a, it's a probably a bit awkward because the, the points that I, I have here t- today, although I haven't shared with Andy in my preparation, they're actually very similar to the ones that he preached uh, this morning. So I, I hope that by God's providence that will actually help us to galvanize the teaching of his words. So we see the first point here is a contrast in worship. So the glory of the old versus the glory of the new covenant. I wonder if you ever notice as we grow older, I think changes. Now to change something becomes harder and harder. We become less prone to change, more resistant to change, uh, less willing to consider, let's say, food or new clothes, always already in our, in our way. I think even though I don't consider myself to be a, a very old, but I can see that in my taste, my personal preference, they are more settled uh, as, as we, we grow up and as we grow older. And actually, broadly speaking, this is a good thing, um, that our experiences in life, uh, in, as we are tested by the trials of life, that we get more mature and that we identify ourselves more with, with the reality around us and that would shape us. But it can also, it can also has a, a negative effect because it can make us more stubborn in a sense or arrogant or, or closed and single-minded. It, it's the things that they put in horses. I think they call it yeah, blinkers or, or, or blinders. You know, the, the thing that makes horses, they can't see to the side but just straight. I think it, it can, you know, the resistance to change might, might incur a risk of creating or making us uh, more unidimensional uh, beings and more closed and even less critical in our thinking. And I think in, the, you know, in a way, we, we see that, especially in this passage here, uh, because this, the author is writing to Jews, is the letter to Hebrews, and uh, they had been presented the gospel, they were growing faith, but the context here is that the, he's writing as this letter of encouragement because some of them were turning away from their faith, and they, would, they, were, they were actually turning back to the old covenant. And uh, we, in, in some ways, even as we read the Old Testament, I think we can empathize with that. But, you know, this resistance to change in, in the way that they were living, I think they missed the mark as they couldn't see that there was actually a drastic change. There was a drastic change in redemptive history, isn't it? They were going back to the old covenant and missing the mark. They needed to see clearer. They needed to see Jesus, to see that the dramatic change that he had implemented, that everything that they were actually trying to go back to was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It was but a model of the new covenant. So the author draws this 
this um, this contrast here between the the two mountains. And see how he starts in verse 18. For you have not come. For you have not come. It's interesting that even as speaking to Mount Zion, he first starts by what Mount Zion is not. For you have not come. And he refers to the events that we read here in Exodus 19 regarding Mount Sinai. So if you have not fresh in your mind, what is Mount Sinai and why is it that important? Well, Mount Sinai or Horeb, as it's called in Deuteronomy, was the place where God has given Moses the Ten Commandments. God gave them Torah, the law. And the Jews are very proud and say that these were just the ten first commandments because we also observe 613 other commandments. We are very good at that. So Mount Sinai, in that sense, the law, it actually defined them as people. Mount Sinai was the model on which the Jewish church state was shaped, molded. And all the old covenant worship is molded after that. How did this happen? Well, in Mount Sinai, how, how, how were these Ten Commandments given? I think that's what the author says here. There was this uh, blazing fire, this darkness and gloom, this tempest. And even prior to that, if, if, as we read, actually God had miraculously you know, saved them from the exile in Egypt. So we see, you know, the, the Red Sea and all of, all of that. Uh, what an image here, isn't it? So in a very powerful way, in a powerful display, with trumpets proclaiming loudly the glory of the Lord. We see in that mountain, didn't we? A theophany, an appearance of God in visible way. What a glorious display of power. I think we can certainly empathize here. This really calls for a sense of awe and worship. But see with me here again uh, in, in verses um, 19 and 20. And a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. So as soon as God, because God spoke to them in that mountain, in that mountain, but as soon as God spoke, immediately there's a halt. Immediately, because for even if an animal touched the mountain, it should have been put to death. God's holiness came down and set apart that mountain. There is a sense of separation, God's coming down and setting apart the mountain of a separation. And that separation provoked a sense of unbearableness. It's separated. It's, it's not, it cannot be touched. You know, people heard that voice of thunder as we read before, and, and they were feeling terrified. There was a terror, and such was this trembling that they longed that they, no, we cannot hear this anymore. And they longed also for a mediator, and they said, Moses, you go up, we don't want to hear that anymore. And, and if you see throughout the history how that actually shaped their worship, think of the temple. Think of the, 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 the liturgy. You know, it's the, it's a temple in a mount. It's, there's a thick curtain that separates the Holy of Holies. There is a high priest and only the high priest is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and uh, to perform sacrifices for the people, not without performing first 
a ritual for himself. And he would go in that dark room and with some bells uh, in his garments, just so people know that he's still alive. He makes any noise and then he would come out once a year. And then he would pronounce this priestly benediction to people. So that's the, the panorama. That's the image of, the, of this young uh, Christian Jews here. Um, they have tasted that worship. They imagine the choirs in the, the in the temple. Imagine, you know, the 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 size of the display of that temple. They wanted to go back to that. The author here is calling them to say, "Look, you are missing the mark. These are pointers to Jesus." But, but uh, I love the the beauties uh, of scripture. There's a but there in verse 22. So verse, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now he's doing a positive comparison here. We have come to Mount Zion. We have come to Jesus. We have come to what the law was powerless to do. We have come to grace. There is such an enormous contrast in here. That's the promulgation of the law which is awesome, but there is the joyful proclamation of the gospel. And it's actually portrayed in such a vividness here. Um, What does it say again? We have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. I think this... You know, see the earthly becoming heavenly. It's, it's beautiful. The physical becoming spiritual. And this mention here of angels, this should definitely uh, puzzle us in a sense, but definitely affects our worship. Because it is almost as if, look, we are in a company to innumerable uh, angels in festival gathering. Is it almost as if the dimensions of, you know, heaven and earth are becoming so uh, thinner and closer that by faith we can even as we gather here, even we are few here today, we can think of these innumerable angels in festival gatherings singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? We can join this heavenly choir in worship. It's almost as if heaven had come down to us. And I can't help but Remember this morning service where Angel or oh, Andy has um, mentioned the, 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 the Isaiah six, you know, the vision that Isaiah, the undone Isaiah had um, of, of angels, and we think about angels in festival gathering, and we can think of such is the intensity of God's love, brightness, and purity that the angels, holy beings, like angels. They are veiling their sight, as we just sang. It's, it's just amazing. But not only that, not only we are in the company of angels, but we can see here that we are also, verse 23, in the, uh, joined to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So, because we are promised eternal life, we know that even the great heroes of faith, if you're familiar with the letter of Hebrews, or you can just flick the page here, chapter 11 is the great chapter of faith, where he goes that by faith, Abraham, by faith, Abraham, by faith, it's very poetic as well in that sense, 
And all of that list, the little book of martyrs there, the catalog of the heroes of faith, we are joined with them in, in, as we come to Jesus. The whole body of believers, women and men, saved by Christ, saved by the sprinkled blood of our great high priest. And then he says again, a blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, I, I quickly mentioned here, sorry, we don't have much time, but in chapter 11, he starts actually by saying, by faith, Abel. And then if you think, uh, a blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, what word did the blood of Abel speak? What word is the blood of Abel speak? If you remember that in Genesis, uh, <clears throat> it's uh, the word, the blood of Abel cried for vengeance. The blood of Abel cried for vengeance, but the blood of Christ cries for mercy. So it's a stark difference. So I would like to ask you, do you see this company of believers? Can you, can you maybe say to yourself, is that me in there? Have you come to this sprinkled blood? And the question is not if you understood doctrine. The question is not if you have observed laws. The question is, have you come to the blood of the Lamb? Have you come to Christ? If that's your case, the Holy Spirit brought you here. You have come to the cross of Jesus, and you have come trembling with guilt, with a heavy heart. But the voice that you heard... It's not the same voice that Mount Sinai. It's not a voice that uh, creates terror. It's a kind voice. It's a sweet voice. A voice that says to you that you have forgiveness when you come to him. And you have righteousness by faith. And I find a very interesting continue here, that he says, we have come, we have not come. There is this flow, there is this progression that we, we are coming, that we, there's a pilgrimage that we are involved here. And in Christ, there is this journey. We are always coming to Christ, always growing. But there's another application here as well, because we might be so overwhelmed by grace. Oh, grace is so good. We have come to Christ that we might be tempted to dismiss the law, as if grace and law were totally irreconcilable. By no means, it is not. There is grace in the law, for the law is the manifestation of God's character. The law is the most sound guiding principles that we ever seen. Oh, great modern societies are based on the Ten Commandments. And there is law and grace as well. For having received grace, one cannot just go go back and say nothing but gratitude. We cannot. By having received grace, we have to pursue obedience uh, with grateful hearts. So can you see also, as we've mentioned already, that Jesus fulfilled all of these ministries. He fulfilled <clears throat> the, the ministry of the high priest, the temple liturgy, the sacrifices. He became this mediator 
of the, this new covenant. I hope you, you see that uh, so far and you apply that to your life, that you can trust him in this progressive revelation of redemptive history. The law was very effective and still is very effective in convicting us for, uh, for our sins. Because when you look at the law, look, you, um, thou shalt not lie. We know that we are liars. Thou shalt not murder. We know that we are people who murder each other in, in, oh, in many senses, in the real strict sense, because we see people murdering each other and also in the way that we get so angry with one another, even being, uh, Creatures of God, of the same God. But also, it creates this, it convicts us from sin, but also creates this longing for our salvation, for our Savior. And that's why we are here, because we have come to Mount Zion. That these spiritual eyes have been um, open, and now we can see Christ in the who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his being. It's, it is him that we worship. So we see this contrast in worship. And in closing, there's another contrast here as well, which is the contrast in the response. So again, <clears throat> I had another illustration here. I had to change because um, this morning... <clears throat> uh, when Andy was, was preaching and, and talking about Isaiah 6, I felt it, it was really matching what I was saying. So we see Isaiah in that vision of the splendor of the majesty of God. Um, as he is confronted with God's holiness, he is unable to see his wickedness in a much clearer way. And what happens? He changes. He changes the standards. The standard of his worship is changed. His woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips, as he's confronted uh, with that. So, as we are confronted with God's holiness, it changes our behavior towards worship. And that's exactly a similar image that we see here. Uh, <clears throat> remember that I've mentioned there is a lovely balance between explanation and exhortation, doctrine, in application, I think this is exactly a very good example of it. If you see from verses 18 to uh, 24, is doctrine. And if you see 25 to 29, is more of a, an application. And it, can you see as he starts in verse 25, he says, See that. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See that. See, there's a great deal of a pastoral care. See that. For even... When the law was given by God, they continue to refuse him. So he's thinking about Sinai. For even when Jesus was on earth, they rejected him. See that. See that you don't do that. The author actually is calling out for a wholehearted response in faith. Listen to this call. Are you doing this? Are you listening to the calls of Jesus in your life? Are your hearts burning perhaps when you listen to this call from Holy Scripture? Or are you rejecting the words of Jesus? Please don't do that. Don't harden your heart.
And he continues. At that time at Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but now it shakes also the heavens. So he's also quoting from a prophecy of Haggai here, which is beautiful, another fulfillment. So pay attention, you see, Mount Sinai could not be, oh, actually, Mount Sinai could be touched. And because it could be, it could be touched, it could also be shaken. And it, which is a representation, in one sense, of the old covenant, that it has now been removed in, 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 in the author's words here. If you read from Hebrews uh, 8.13, actually says, by calling this covenant new, he made he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete is ready to vanish away. So that what? So that the kingdom that cannot be shaken may remain. So Jesus fulfilled Sinai and everything it represented. The physical has been replaced by the spiritual. The external has now gone also internal. Because Jesus fulfilled not only the law, in the letter, but also in the spirit, in its intent, in he, he in the letter, in a sense that he fulfilled its prescriptions, but also uh, in the spirit, in a sense that he fulfilled his its intentions. Um, you probably, uh, maybe the younger ones are, f- are familiar with this quote, saying, "With a great power comes a great responsibility." Uh, well, I think it's a very similar. Uh, thing that the author here is warning us that with a great, with a greater privilege comes a greater responsibility. For if we reject him who was from heaven, how, how can we now, what, what does he say here? How can we escape? How much less? So, um, verse uh, 25, um, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less we will escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Can you see the privilege that we have? This warning is issued here so that we can stop and think, what have I received? What has been shown to me? What this privilege that we are? I think... To be honest, uh, very often we don't do the privilege that we have. We don't see us here in this company of innumerable angels in festal gathering. We don't see that by faith we are joined by them and all the firstborns who are enrolled in heaven, all those who are the body of faith. But if we trust the scripture, uh, we will see that it's not only the law, uh, Jesus says of uh, John the Baptist, for instance, in chapter 7, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, according to scripture, according to the word of Christ, we are greater than John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. What such a privilege we have. We have been born in the kingdom. The kingdom of King Jesus who is enthroned in heaven. And he is here today. He is here with us today. The kingdom of God is being built. A kingdom that cannot be shaken.
As we conclude, just, uh, let, let us just think of a few points of application here. And how should we respond to that? Because it's such a wonderful image. And being a wonderful image, it should definitely fill us with wonder. It should take us to our knees in worship, in thanksgiving, and in adoration. We should be so thankful for being removed from the curse of the law. Not to live a life of total disregard for the law, but being grateful and in obedience to our Savior. This should be the, 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 the thrust that should shape our worship. And although the mounts are different, uh, the God is the same. So that raises uh, lots of questions, uh, maybe, uh, because the God that sometimes is portrayed in these worldly images is a tamed God, you know, a senile God. That is someone with gray hairs up in the sky. It's not this majestic, powerful image here that we have in Scripture. A God, in closing here, for our God is a consuming fire. It's a God of just wrath, a God of vengeance, the Lord of hosts. Fear and trembling is a right response before a holy God. But the God will bring judgment to those who refuse and despise the gospel. He will also deal gracefully to those whom he loves. And he will care, he will protect, and he will provide for all the inhabitants of the kingdom. So, in closing, are you part of the kingdom? Or are you just about to be consumed by this holy fire, this consuming fire in your rebellion? Are you going to be protected by this mighty fortress? Have you professed allegiance, loyal allegiance to God, to your eternal, immortal, invisible King? If so, let us come to the Mount of Zion, come to Jesus, come to the lowly hills of heavenly worship, and let's worship our King until he comes. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the joy with which you have called us to worship. Thank you, Jesus, our King. Bring your kingdom to, your, to our hearts. Let us contemplate your works and fill our hearts with gratitude so that filled with reverence and awe, Lord, and filial fear, we may offer acceptable worship to you. In your name we pray. Amen.